Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. It is often said that the devil is in the details, but I'll argue that the devil is in the definition. How we see things determine the way we interact with those things. In other words, narratives matter. They shape policy, they shape politics, they shape everything of consequence. Joining me today is Howard French, the author of four works of nonfiction, including most recently in 2021, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War, which was selected as one of the best books of the year by the Financial Times. Howard's other three books have also been named among the best books of the year after publication. Howard is a professor at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. He's a former senior writer and foreign correspondent for the New York Times, working in the Caribbean and Central America, West and Central Africa, Japan and the Koreas, and China. Good morning, Howard, and welcome to Into Africa. Congratulations again uh, on your book, which I've enjoyed quite a bit, Born in Blackness. Born in Blackness challenges the traditional narrative about Africa as the dark continent with all that it entails. Particularly, you take issue with the description of Africa as a continent that has played only a minor role in the development of the world as we know it today. Are there any reaction to this book that stands out to you today? First of all, you know, as an author, I have always believed that once you release a book into the wilds, meaning make it available to the public, it's the public that owns the book, in a sense. And so their responses will be wide and varied, uh, and every reader has a right to his or her own response. And I completely accept and buy into that. Having said that, I've been very pleased in general by the nature of the response to the book. There's been no sort of systematic counterargument mounted against my findings, and it has sparked a lot of discussion in a variety of different intellectual settings. And, and that's been of great pleasure to me because that's the whole point in writing a book. Fantastic. I, as one of the, those readers, found the book quite uh, insightful. You know, being an African, we grew up with certain of these stories, some of them anyway, but seeing the intellectual underpinnings, seeing somebody go and do the research and connect the dot has been very useful to see. So reading your book, one is struck by both the breadth and the depth of your research and the historical background material that you, uh, you brought in to bear. How was that journey of discovery and were there any specific surprises that stood out to you yourself as you embark on that journey of research? Sure. Um, so I spent roughly speaking about a decade researching this book. I spent two years prior to the start of the writing, uh, working solely on this book. The research in the book actually started in the background of another book, my previous book, which is called Everything Under the Heavens, and is a treatment of the history of East Asia and of its experience of the rise of the West. And it was in the research of that book that I came across very interesting things about the record of Portuguese exploration in the 15th and 16th centuries that I had never heard before and was not aware of. 
And so that sort of set me on the path of, of this book and placed me in contact with Portuguese archives from the era I just mentioned. And so, so that was a surprise. For one thing, I'll just mention, I learned in the research for that book that people like Christopher Columbus and Vasco da Gama and Bartolomeu Diaz, some of the most famous explorers of the age of, of, of discovery, as it's known, had worked for prolonged amounts of time along the West African coast, ferrying trade back and forth to Elmina in present-day Ghana and to other points in West and Central Africa. And, you know, Columbus is one of these figures, few people about whom more books have been written. And I have read a fair few books about Columbus. And prior to the research on my East Asia book, I had never even come across any mention of Columbus working in Africa before. The familiar story that I knew about how the modern age begins with Columbus's quote-unquote discovery of the Americas. And Africa is described, if it's mentioned at all, usually as this enormous geographic obstacle that needs to be overcome or circumnavigated in order for the Europeans to reach Asia. Of course, Columbus had a novel approach and going the other direction west across the Atlantic, but the whole idea was described as reaching Asia. And the facts that, as I began to unearth them, tell a very different story that Europe was, certain parts of Europe, especially Portugal, were completely, completely obsessed about connecting with Africa many decades before any thought of making discovery of a route to Asia by sea their priority. So that was a big surprise. Another big surprise I would mention, and there were many in, this, in the work on this book for me, one of the great pleasures of researching a book like this is simply discovery. But another kind of big surprise for me was the role that a tiny island called Sao Tome played in modernity. It's my argument in the book that the plantation, as we tend to call it rather euphemistically, which I would prefer to describe in other terms as a industrial prison labor camp. But in America, we call them plantations. These are places where Africans were put to work under the lash to produce commodities for Europeans. The system that we know of as the plantation system was kind of perfected in Sao Tome, a little place that very few people know much about or don't hear much about in the accounts, in the standard accounts of world history. And so this was a big surprise for me, and it led me to develop an argument that runs throughout my book about the importance of sugar. And I would just say two things really quickly, that the plantation or the prison labor camp, as I prefer, was the most important economic innovation of the modern age prior to the Industrial Revolution. And the second thing I would say, its most important product in the first half of the modern age, sugar, was the most important driver of the divergence of Europe and subsequently of Anglophone North America in terms of their wealth and power from other parts of the world like India or China or what have you. So resources seem to me to be at the center of this exploration. I mean, that's what we've been taught in history, although they often talk about spices than sugar, but understanding how within that space of and time of exploration, what role sugar came to play is, um, is key. And of course, sugar doesn't stay in, uh, in Africa. This is another uh, aspect of your book that I found very interesting. You connect the dot to the so-called new world where I like to think of your book is looking at the greater Africa, if you will. So you're not just staying on the continent, but expanding your area of discovery across the world. The narrative that you challenge in Born in Blackness is one at first of the value of Africa. Trade is one of them. 
But we also see a lot of the brutality that goes with. I think it's kind of understated in the story that you just told about Sao Tome. Was the brutality an eventuality that had to happen, or is that something that changed with time? In other words, I remember you describing the extinction of certain groups on the islands of Azores, I think, and the Canary Islands and so on. And of course, we see this level of brutality tumbling down as the explorer, quote-unquote, or the new powers arrive in the region? Or was there a time where people actually, both the New World, in this case Africa, and which will not have been so new with for the Europeans, where they traded on a level of respect and dignity, not so much in terms of conquest? Enslavement is, by necessity, a process of violence. And so let's, let me substitute the word violence for brutality. There's a certain amount of overlap between the two terms. As Africans were sucked into the international slave trade, we usually call the transatlantic slave trade, they were equally sucked into processes of violence. This took many forms. It took the form of inducement, deliberate inducement by Europeans of warfare between African societies that lived in close proximity to each other on the theory that chaos and violence would drive refugee populations and that refugee populations would be susceptible for trade by local authorities along the West African coast or Central African coast into the slave trade. So that's one form of violence. And the other form of violence is at the other end of this chain of events, and that is in the so-called New World on plantations. As I said, we've got to get rid of this idea of what these things were. Plantation hides their reality. These are really slave labor camps, industrial labor camps, prisons, in effect, industrial prisons. And that means that the people were confined through violence. They were regimented through violence. Their productivity in the field or in the sugar mill was sustained through violence. Discipline was maintained through violence, et cetera, et cetera. So there's brutality at every step of this. I think your question, though, contained another sort of a hint of uh, interest in, in another aspect of all of this. And that is, as the Europeans begin to set down the West African coast in the 15th century, looking for gold, that's what set them off in exploration of Africa prior to any dream of navigating to Europe. They were looking for gold, but the Portuguese didn't initially encounter much gold. And because Portugal was such a poor state, such a poor kingdom, in order to continue funding these voyages, they had to substitute some other kind of trade, trade meaning in their minds, in order to, to finance these voyages. And so the Portuguese begin initially in the early 1400s to launch small-scale military raids, mostly against poorly organized societies, eligible victims, let's call them, along the West African coast, and try to capture people to ship not to the New World, which hadn't been discovered by them yet, but to Europe for sale. And so we see in the 1400s and 1500s, the result of this is, in a very short period of time, a really rapid buildup of the African population. And this is an unknown feature of the history of this era, even in Spain and Portugal. But in those two countries in particular, in many places, 10% of the population became African because Africans were being carted off to Europe for sale as slaves. And the demand in Europe was driven by the fact that during the Middle Ages, you had the Black Death or the plague, which killed off enormous portions of the European population. Some estimates range as high as a third of the population of certain regions of Europe. And so labor was in demand. And so the Portuguese 
sustained these voyages down the coast through the military capture of people along the coast of West Africa for sale into Europe. This was a difficult and bloody process. The Portuguese concentrated initially, as I said, on poorly organized societies. There are many kingdoms in West Africa that are highly organized societies. The Portuguese understood right away they didn't have the means to project force against highly organized societies. So they chose their spots carefully, looking for places where kingdoms weren't heavily represented or present on the ground and to try to kidnap people. As time went by, the Portuguese changed their tactics and decided, listen, we're sustaining too many casualties in this pursuit of slaves this way. Let's instead work with the organized societies and develop trade relations and diplomacy. And through these, what I would call political ties, we can obtain slaves without overt violence. In other words, we don't have to send our men in armor on horseback onto African shores to chase down people, to put into chains and onto our ships for sale to Europe and later to the Americas. And so you see this shift sort of in the early, mid 15th century from this raiding approach to a more diplomatic and political approach toward trade in human beings. In 1471, there's a parenthesis that begins. The Portuguese arrive at the place called Elmina in present-day Ghana, and it's a eureka moment for them. They have been looking for gold for decades, and now they find gold in enormous quantity along the Ghanaian coast. So this becomes their priority. How do we trade in gold with the local inhabitants of Ghana? And they negotiate a giant fort, a so-called castle there, which exists to this day. And you see a shift from raiding slaves or trading for slaves, which was never the original priority to begin with, to back to this thing about acquiring gold. The amount of gold that the Portuguese were able to obtain through trade, not through violence with Ghana, amounted in the early decades of this trade to perhaps 25% of the entire crown revenue of Portugal. And so this was what made Portugal a player in the early modern age, prior to the discovery of the Americas. Columbus, Bartolomeu Diaz, Vasco da Gama, as I said earlier, all were sort of enlisted in servicing the Portuguese fort at Elmina. And the money that Portugal got through this gold trade allowed the building of the kinds of ships and maritime industries that allowed them subsequently to explore Asia and the Americas. This number of Africans that were brought to Europe, were all of them working in enslaved capacity or were any relationship that developed between this organized society and Portugal, maybe Spain, brought in any of the elites to tap into the culture, quote unquote, of Europe at the time, whether through schooling or religion or any other setting? So in this early slave trade, prior to the discovery of, uh, quote unquote, of the new world, these Africans who were captured or bought through a sort of open commerce and shipped to Europe, chattel slavery, which was the form of slavery, a novel form of slavery in the world and the form of slavery that prevailed in the so-called new world, hadn't really fully been articulated yet. It hadn't been fully elaborated yet. And so the people who were brought from Africa to be sold in Spain and Portugal occupied many tasks, plantations, on a large scale, as we came to know them in the New World, didn't exist yet in Iberia. Some of them worked in agriculture. Some of them worked in, in kind of public works type thing, helping drain land or dig ditches or do um, 
canals, uh, things like that. And a great many of them worked in a domestic capacity, meaning household staff for, for Europeans. Africans become in this same age uh, more integrated at higher levels of European society, not through the slave trade, but through diplomatic ties that the Portuguese begin to form with a number of African societies. The first of these was in the region of present-day Senegal uh, and Gambia. The second of these was in Ghana. The third of these was in Benin, meaning uh, the Benin Kingdom, which is in present-day Nigeria. And the final and most important of these was in Central Africa in a very important state called Congo, which is this society's name is spelled with a K, unlike the modern country. And Congo established, beginning in the early 1500s, very, very deep and complicated relations with Portugal that involved the adoption of the Portuguese language as the language of the court and formal adoption of Roman Catholicism as the state religion of Congo and the sending of children of the Congo elite to Portugal and to other parts of Europe for education and as diplomats and as clergy. Congolese were ordained in the Catholic Church and worked in the Vatican. One of them became a bishop for all of Africa. Another was buried in the Vatican, and you can visit that spot even today. Others, let me just say quickly, uh, worked for the Portuguese state in Portugal. One Congolese official was a senior tax collector. It's really hard to imagine this, but a Congolese sort of assimilated quickly and impressed the Portuguese to the degree that he kept getting promoted and ends up being a, a senior tax collector in early modern Portugal. And so Congo is really the place par excellence where you see this exchange of elites that go back and forth uh, and correspondence, political correspondence back and forth and formal diplomatic and political relations. Bringing it to modern day, the Africans, I think to the 60s particularly, where they're fighting for independence, try to shake off this narrative. You know, you have a certain number of names, the Amilcar Cabral, the Lumumbas of the world, the Kasavubu, and the list goes on. Has Africa in one side, and we saw that also in the, in the other hemisphere, in the Western hemisphere, in places like Haiti, Jamaica, through various forms of expression, whether it be reggae, whether it be in the U.S., the Black Panthers, the entire movement with Kwanzaa celebrating African names and so on. Has that been successful, those movements have then been successful, both the independence movement on the continent in Africa and the other culture movements that took place around the world? Have they been successful to what extent, if you think so, in changing the narrative and how that affects the world today? You asked me about brutality a few minutes ago, and I want to employ this word in another way in trying to answer your question. And I want to say that one of the major forms of brutality throughout this history of Europe's encounter in the early modern period with Africa and with Africans was through the institution of chattel slavery, the explosion or an attempt to explode African culture and African identity. Africans, as they were um, caught up in the trade in human beings across the Atlantic, were deliberately mixed by Europeans in groups uh, such that no one ethnicity or language, whenever possible, they avoided letting any one ethnicity or, or language be heavily predominant. And the idea behind this was that the Africans shouldn't be able to sustain their identity or to communicate easily among themselves, and especially not be able to communicate in ways that the Europeans wouldn't be able to understand. And so the result of this 
was a very sustained attempt to strip Africans of their identity. And this has played itself out in many, many complicated ways over the course of several hundred years of history down to the present day. One of the most important after effects of this is one can um, see right here in the United States, where until historically speaking, a very recent time, African-Americans were actively and insidiously in kind of invisible ways encouraged to distance themselves, to disassociate themselves from Africa in terms of their own identity. I'm old enough so that when I was a little boy, to be African-American for many of us uh, meant trying to renounce or denigrate any direct connection to Africa and to emphasize or to value qualities that heightened any sense of an association with white culture or with Europe. This came down even to sort of petty things like calling relatively straight or light-colored hair good hair and relatively dark or kinky hair bad hair. These kinds of expressions were very common in not-so-distant age. And they are all sort of, I call it some after effects of this attempt to dilute, to diminish, to explode the degree of identity between people of African ancestry that were scattered in one place or another around the Atlantic Basin. And the reason this effort had been so sustained is because Europeans and the descendants in the New World of Europeans have recognized all along not only the importance of Africans and the African diaspora in their wealth, meaning the productivity of these populations in producing wealth that is controlled and primarily profited from by people of European descent, but they have also seen the political danger of association of Africans with each other. That if Africans could only overcome their balkanization and the sort of atomization, the confinement into tiny, tiny little ethnic groups separated by language or by regional chauvinism or by European colonial history, that Africans can overcome these things, then they will constitute, yet again, a very powerful force in the world and within Western societies. And so the people that you asked me about, the Amical Cabrales and the Lumumbas and Toussaint Louverture and Haiti, I would add Eric Williams, you know, we could make a list of these figures, Kwame Nkrumah. These are people who all embraced whether or not they use this term, to a strong degree of faith in the power of Pan-Africanism, meaning a power of the potential of Africans coming together across these petty divisions and chauvinisms in order to celebrate and work together along identity lines to win back the place that's appropriate to them in the world today. Thank you very much, Howard French. It's been a pleasure having you on Into Africa. We look forward to uh, reading more of your writing. Thank you so much, Inmemba. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. <laughs>